Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Brian Murphy, Eric Lopez again with you here as we wrap up the month of January. Um, we would have had this out earlier, but we had two basketball games on Wednesday night, so we're going to talk about those today. Uh, and we got a lot on the plate as the uh, spring sports get ready to um, fire up. Frustrating night for UCF basketball, guys. I think what, what two, two losses by a combined four points that both ended in the span of about 30 seconds, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was not. It was not fun. It was not a banner day for uh, UCF basketball. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about baseball media day. Uh, Murphy's got an interview with Joe Sheridan, who's trying to come back from injury. We'll check in with Joe, see how he's doing, and see if anything, anything interesting came about from media day at all. Um, some good news on the Mackenzie Milton front. Uh, looks like he's going to be changing his braces. So that's good, one that he can actually run in and do all those kinds of things. We'll talk about that. And uh, and, a, and another, by the way, more UCF quarterback news uh, with Quadri Jones coming back, and we'll talk about, and, and also Taco Fall making well, his the way, professional return to Taco Orlando. Taco Fall, though, not coming back to play quarterback at UCF. Not, no, not that's not quarterback news, I should clarify no. for those of you who may have been wondering. But we start with... Uh, basketball, and uh, and we'll start with them. This is just a mind-bogglingly frustrating evening for UCF basketball. Both games, both teams tipping off at seven o'clock. Both teams losing conference games by two points. Um, men's basketball at home to Memphis uh, final was fifty-nine to fifty-seven. And uh, and I, I said I tweeted this at halftime, Murph, and it came true. I said, you know, UCF played well in the first half. Probably should be up by more points than they are. Tell me if you've written if you've read this script before, and lo and behold, look what happened. They got outscored by Memphis by six in the second half, lose by two. Memphis finally gets above five hundred in the American. They're four and three in the conference. The Knights dropped to two and six, eleven and nine overall. Uh, Memphis was led by of all people Lance Thomas, who was eight of eleven, including four of six from exactly three point range, uh, twenty points. They got eighteen from press from a precious. Achiwa, um, we got, uh, and then for UCF, 13 points each for Cesar De Jesus and Colin Smith, but Colin was only four of 13. They, those two guys were combined 10 of 27 from the field. Colin also had 10 rebounds to go with four fouls. Dazon Ingram, six points, only two foul shots. Um, 11 from Darren Green Jr. off the bench. Anyway, I, I mean, this is just a... The UCF, I think, succeeded in making this game what they wanted it to be, which was a uh, it, which was a, a rock fight, and couldn't come up with what they needed down the stretch, Murph. And, and Eric, you also have the breakdown on uh, on uh, on uh, blackandgoldbanneret.com. But Murph, I want to start with you. What, what Dadgummit, What what is this team still missing here? Yeah, well, this game really felt like everything that UCF could have done to win it, or at least everything that you would have, everything that they would have would have wanted to win it, as far as controlling the pace, um, keeping the score down, making it kind of just a physical, kind of a messy game against a team that wants to get up and down and 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 basically um, outplay you with that, with their athleticism. UCF was able to neutralize all of that. Um, they, they, you know, they kept. DJ Jeffries and, and Tyler Harris, Alex Lomax, uh, who uh, you know a, a trio of, of Memphis players who averaged I think a combined like 27 points a game. Those three players didn't score a point. None of them. 
Pressure Chua, sure, got got loose in the second half because that's what he's gonna do. Like he's gonna be a top fifteen, a top fifteen draft pick. So even though even though he kind of got loose in the second half, it, it wasn't a great night for him. Um, and UCF was was doing pretty well with handling the ball and. But man, Lance Thomas. I mean, Lance Thomas. I don't think any you can prepare for that for a for a guy who, entering this game, was one for sixteen from three, had scored a total of fourteen points in his last ten games. Again, total fourteen points, and he comes out and scores twenty points, hits four of six three pointers, made some absolutely dagger shots late in this game, and that's the difference. I mean, you can also look at UCF and how. They struggled again offensively. Second half, Colin Smith checks out after picking up his fourth foul around the nine-minute mark. And from there, over the next few minutes, Memphis goes on like a 7-0 run to really take control of the game to which UCF never led again. But it's just in a game where you you basically kept their their star player, Achua, to, be, to having a pretty average night, completely shut out three of their other top scorers, and kept the game in the range where you want it, you still lose because the guy who's literally 10th or 11th on their scoring column has the night of his career in college. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. And like Johnny Dawkins said last night, very disappointing because the team has been in close games uh, seemingly all year long and just hasn't found a way to really close many of them out. Eric, why can't this team score down the stretch? Well, I don't think they have a, a guy that can take over a game like Achua did. Uh, Chua scored, as Murph mentioned, 13 of 18 points. I mean, that is something to be – you can't put a value on that, not this year anyway. I will defend the offense in this regard, and if you listen to last week's episode, Brian um, kind of broke this down when we briefly talked about Memphis. Memphis is really good defensively. They're third in the country in field goal percentage against. Memphis only gives up about – 36% from the field. That's third in the country. They only give up 30% on the three-point line. That's 62nd in the country. That's all very good. So I don't think anybody should be surprised that UCF struggled offensively against Memphis. Uh, I think that was expected. I think UCF did a great job on Memphis offensively, holding them 14 points below their average to Merce Point. They controlled tempo. But the problem is, they don't have a guy that can go off for ten, seven, ten points in a row. Uh, you know, Murph, I think you even tweeted it out, and I put it on my recap on Blacking O'Banneret. Even though Achua was contained for the most part, he's, he is so good, so good. And you got to see him now in person back-to-back uh, this year. Uh, he's so good that he had that spurt in the second half, around that 10-minute mark, early in the second half, where you're like, oh, boy, he's taking over the game. And he started making plays. And now that puts the defense – to even uh, form on him even more, and it gave Lance Thomas some open shots. That's you know that's a, uh, UCF doesn't have that. They don't have that guy that people are like. We got to bring two three guys on him because he can take over a game. Not this year. They've had that in the past. Right now they don't have that. So I think that's why the offensive struggles add to the fact Murph, Colin Smith gets into foul trouble, and when he goes on the bench. They kind of look lost offensively, especially inside where they don't have much scoring inside if it doesn't come from Colin, right, Murph? Absolutely. I mean, in this game, you know, they didn't play Avery Diggs at all. They played Ibrahim uh, uh, Famuke Dumbia because he's more athletic to keep up with, with Memphis's front line 
but it wasn't like they were going to use him as an offensive force. They really needed Colin to be that guy on the block to, again, score. And he looked really good in the first half where he was sort of – he really controlled, I think, that game on both ends. I thought he did a really good job when Achua came close to him in their zone D of making things tough for him. And then offensively, he scored 10 points in the first half, played well. Then the second half, he picked up three fouls in pretty quick, uh, uh, pretty quick order. And it, that just seemed to, once again, leaves the offense stagnant. Um, you know, I, I, I will say that uh, although the UCF offense, you know, doesn't have a guy, like you said, without Colin, doesn't have a guy that can step up. It's not like Lance Thomas is a guy that we all thought was going to have a huge night. UCF has guys who can hit shots. We know this. I mean, we know that Darren Green or or Matt Milan can go have 15 points. Uh, but but you know, like like Thomas did, like kind of go off unexpectedly. But it just seems that it's very few and far between. Where maybe you get two of these guys a night who has a good game offensively. It just it, it, it you have basically Caesar Jesus. You have you have Colin Smith, and then uh, you just you have no idea what to depend upon offensively with this team yeah I mean it's it's so frustrating to watch because the talent is there but it's just like like I said earlier it's the same it's it's the same script over and over and over again and and that that's the part that's frustrating so all right let's look ahead to let's 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 I mean again they out you know they were right there with a Memphis team that going in was the overwhelming favorite and Murph, I, I don't well, know. Well, it was a one-and-a-half point spread. Two points, actually. It, it was a two-point spread, and that's noteworthy, Jeff. That is very noteworthy. That last three was very important to a lot of people uh, <laughs> there. Thank but you, look, Brent they're, Musburger. They're, anyway, carry on. <laughs> they're very close. And, and I'm going to read, a, you know, a listener, reader uh, from the Banneret on Twitter, Wade Jai Hay, you know, mentioned it to keep the positive. We could still turn the season around. The next two games are a must-win to get to 500 can't wait for saturday at usf go knights and here's the thing they have been at every game i think houston would be probably the only game they weren't in and even then they were sort of in it until the last eight minutes would you agree yeah. with that murph yes um, so yeah. they're right there in games uh look the the, ta- the lance thomas thing is kind of a random fluky thing you just you know it's just bad luck sometimes you just tip your cap to the other team i mean i think UCF executed their plan well. It just you can't predict the guy averaging two points a game to score twenty. Uh, you know, props to him. But look, they're two and six. They got they're at USF this weekend. Then they're going at East Carolina and host Tulsa. I'm not saying that they're gimmies, but there are winnable games. And if they can get you know if they can get over the hump here, win two out of three, all three. Now they're near five hundred again. So I, I wouldn't just all of a sudden say, man, this it, is a just an unbelievable deal. It just is what it is. A lot of the uh, the positives are Darren Green had a second consecutive game off the bench where I thought he played very well. Dre Fuller, Murph, returned from a groin injury. I know he was rusty, didn't look good, but you hope now with him back in the fold, he can kind of get back to that rhythm that he was prior to the injury where I thought he was playing at a very high level in a two-way, mm-hmm. in a, both sides of the court. So between yes. those two guys, those are two freshmen right there. And then Tony Johnson, we haven't talked about, had a great game at Wichita State. Didn't play as much as I thought maybe in the Memphis game. Maybe the matchups just didn't play out. I think to me, from a Knight fan, obviously, yes, the win-losses is the important category. But I also think seeing these young kids progress as the year goes on is just as important. And I think can't be lost on that. Right, Murph? 
No, I agree. I'm interested to hear. We'll probably get to talk to Coach Dawkins on Friday as a, as a preparation for the USF game. I'd like to know or uh, talk about talk to him about how he handled Tony Johnson in this game. Tony was the first guy off the bench along with Darren Green. They both checked in together, but they were the first reserves off the bench for UCF in this game against Memphis. And you know, deservedly so. That Tony, you know, was really good in, in a tight spot in a tough place, a tough environment at Wichita State. So I think that was more of a nod toward Tony for a job well done. And this was sort of like his reward was he was the first guy off the bench. However, he had a really quick hook, and then you rarely saw him from there. I, I would like to know what Coach Dawkins thought about his few minutes on the court and whether some of that, you know, pulling him so quickly, it, does he worry at all about him maybe losing confidence again uh, after, you know, such a good game, and then now you have a game where – you just you was kind of a, just a whisper. How do you sort of keep a freshman's confidence up when there are these roller coasters, uh, you know, throughout the season? Yeah. Well, um, by the way, speaking of roller coasters, I mean you're going to get the opportunity to hopefully see a little bit more of that in these next two games. But like you said, Eric, these the next three. I mean, I look at the next two as pretty critical because they're on the road, but they're again, you said winnable games. Uh, UCF is in a four-way tie for last right now in the conference at two and six in the league with Temple, Tulane, and their next opponent, USF. USF is nine and twelve. We've seen how they've struggled this year. ECU is only one game up at three and five. They're nine and twelve overall. But don't they have sleep the best on player in the conference though as well. I mean, let's quick note: Jaden Gardner. We I mean Murph, you saw yeah. Precious. Jaden Gardner yeah. leads the conference in scoring and rebounding. He's a one-man show there. He gave UCF fits last year. He's averaging 22 and 10. Doesn't get talked enough about because he's at ECU, but uh, he's a heck of a ball player that UCF's going to have to deal with. Uh, deal there. So, I, again, I, I, while I say it is a winnable game, obviously no locks at all. Yeah. But I do no. think there's opportunities here to get a couple wins here and get on a positive run here. And they're going to have to do it quick because Tulsa coming up, Tulsa's 6-1. and one. They're off to an amazing start in conference, 14-6 and six overall. And, uh, and they're coming here. So could UCF get a couple road wins that would give them, hopefully restore some of their confidence, right, Murph? Yeah, it, it probably would. Um, but I'd like to say one thing, what Eric said, Jaden Gardner, no one knows about him because he is in Greenville. But as a true sophomore, I mean, he was a freshman of the, I, I believe he was the freshman of the year in the conference last year. And he's just gotten better. He really is quite amazing to watch for a kid who's at ECU. And Tulsa... I know we don't look at them as like this name brand program, but I mean, at this point, they've already beaten Houston and Memphis, uh, and they beat. You know, I just feel like that 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 game at home is critical if you win these first two games. If you win these these two road games, man, that game against Tulsa at home is going to be dynamite because you. Yeah, I don't know how much you can quantify confidence, but you would hope that they would have more of it coming into that game. And then, you know, if, if Tulsa keeps going the way they are, you could have a matchup, again, against the, the number one team in this conference right now. Maybe not with their roster or, or their talent or their athleticism, but in pure record, they're atop the conference. And so we'll see what happens here. That's, you know, that's 10 days from now. Um, but I do think UCF can win at USF. They haven't lost to USF in quite a while. And then at, UC, at ECU, if you keep Gardner down, they're, pretty, they're a relatively easy team to beat. Yeah. Um, but again, uh, who knows in this conference? We just saw Memphis lose by forty. Uh, no, <laughs> nothing is guaranteed on any yeah. night. Well, yeah, I mean, Mer, let me ask you that because you've been very quick to uh, kind of say, "Hey, I'm not going to 
press the panic button on Memphis. Uh, you know, let's give credit to the other teams or that. Now you've watched them in person. They, they break off this night. Are you still in that camp or are you now concerned about Memphis? Because obviously there were the Memphis papers, the media was concerned. That's for sure going in. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, look, they lost James Wiseman. He left the team. That was huge. But it looked like for a while, hey, that wasn't going to be a factor. This was a team that now went from being a perennial a conference favorite NCAA tournament team to a bubble team in a matter of a couple of weeks. Your thoughts on Memphis seeing them in person? Well, that is the, I mean, that's why the papers in Memphis are freaking out because they had expectations for this team. And even without Wiseman, they were still going to probably, you know, they should be a top 25 team just based on what they have in terms of talent. I mean, DJ Jeffries and Precious Chua, you know, are NBA draft picks right away, right now. Uh, again, the fact that Jeffries did not score and UCF still lost. Holy Christ. Um, yeah, but I, 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 I still think that Memphis, in terms of talent, probably okay. Maybe not, maybe not the clear favorite, but probably one or two. It's just, man, they get on these spurts where they take some bad shots, and they then like you can really see like why they've struggled shooting in conference. Like, I know they want to shoot, but man, some of these guys aren't even close, and, and some of the shots are really, really rancid. If they just pound it into a Chua and really. Precious needs to, I think, work a little bit more to get his spot on the block. He like, there were times in that game where they were where they were rolling, and he just wasn't setting up. He was sort of standing around waiting for a putback or a rebound. He needs to be a little bit more assertive. But my God, when he wants to do something, he is absolutely unstoppable. UCF was was fronting him at points with Dre Fuller, which was just not not even close. Uh, and and he is probably, I think. I mean, no, 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 no huge, no huge uh, announcement here. I, I believe he's the best player in the conference. I mean, from what I've seen so far this year in person, he's he's outstanding. And when he wants to play well, he can carry this team on their, I mean, he can carry this team on his back, on his back. Um, but you know, he just needs to to be more assertive. And then their shot selection and 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 uh, handling with the ball just needs to be smarter. But you know, when you have a lot of freshmen, sometimes they make dumb mistakes. Yeah. Also, use a little better coaching. <coughs> better coaching. <laughs> What? Better. Eddie? Hardaway? Uh, uh, by the way, one thing. Um, Shots fired. I'm just, saying, I'm just saying that some people in the league kind of like, hey, you know, let's Penny, let's not, uh, let's see if he can coach before we automatically put him in the, I don't, you know. I don't think, I don't think Penny, I don't think Penny Hardaway's primary objective at Memphis as their head coach is to actually coach. I'm just putting it out there. Oh, there we go. There we go. Everybody, point. everybody knows that, though. That's a fact. Everybody knows that. But here's the thing. I mean, and I know fans don't like to hear this. Sometimes you got to get the breaks have to go your way. Like UCF didn't catch a break. You mentioned Lance Thomas, 20 points. Like that's a bad break. That's a bad luck that this guy just goes off on you the night. Look at Wichita State. UCF got called for 31 fouls. I wrote about this on the recap. The last time a UCF team got called for over 30 fouls in a basketball game was March 4th, 2009 at Tulsa. This is a team that (laughs) – think about that. This team is usually under 20 fouls per game. They gave up 40. They, Wichita State went to the four, free throw line 42 times. The last time a team went to the line against UCF 40 times or more was UTEP at UTEP, February 11, 2009. All these games are on the road. What a coincidence. Um, so my point is they caught a bad break that night with the whistle. Uh, and I'm not saying that all the fouls weren't some of them were not legit, but there were some that you also shake your head, like the Dejon Ingram play against Wichita State where he's going to the basket, he scores. It looks like, hey, it's going to be a three-point 
play. Instead, they call a charge, and then he's running back to the court, upset, but he's not at the ref, and the ref whistles him for a tee anyway, which happens to be his fifth foul because in college, when you get teed up, it counts as a foul, and he fouls out of the game. Those are bad breaks, and there's it's tough to overcome those things, especially when you don't have a marquee star on your roster. That's wow. all, you know, I think that's got to be – so hopefully – as we get into these two-game road trip, they can catch some breaks as well as play well. Well, to say it's a bad break is certainly an understatement to me. They uh, well, next chance we have is again Saturday at four in Tampa, ESPNU against South Florida. Uh, the ECU Murph, game is next Thursday. So. The road trip for Murph. This isn't as a roadie for Murph. Yeah, I think I can make it. Yeah, I mean you don't even have to you don't even have to spend any time on a layover. How about that? So I know I don't, but there's no there's no uh, out of commission bombers, Jeffrey. That I can that's, see, that's unfortunate. I mean, you know, well, I mean, in Tampa, I don't know. No, you can't go fly anything in Tampa. There's nothing interesting over there. Anyway, there won't be as many people in the building as there was in Wichita. That's probably so true to too. <laughs> so, uh, I want to flip over to the uh, to the women because um, Dadgummit, I this team is really frustrating on the road. So Saturday they take Memphis to the woodshed 82-66 in a game that was not that close um at home. Um and we, you know the good things that we saw from that game uh 21 points for KK right on 8 of 15. Brittany Smith continues to just to to really play well. 6 of 9 12 points. Uh she only had one rebound, but uh, Masnikaba had 11 and 7. Um, but then they go on the road to Temple, a team that's just ahead of them in the RPI. Um, Temple's, uh, I think, five or six spots ahead of them. I'll double check now. But um, but then they go and another close game, nail biter, and UCF has a shot to tie it at the end, but it's no good. Sixty five, excuse me, sixty seven, sixty five was the uh, was the final at McGonagall Hall. Um, for UCF, believe it or not, their leading scorer, Cortesia Sanders. First time she's led UCF in scoring all year. 7 of 11 had a great game. 7 of 11, 14 points. KK had 13 on 6 of 16. Um, Masani Cabo was 5 of 7 uh, for 10 points. Brittany Smith added 9 on 4 of 9. But um, this was a frustrating game because it seemed like just when UCF had felt like they had Temple, they ended up giving it right back. Marissa Mackins uh, led the Owls with 22. Um, shooting, by the way, for this game, UCF 44%, Temple 43. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, like I said, this game was just infuriating to watch. Uh, although Temple did have the advantage on rebounds, significant too, 41 to 30. But here's the situation. I think you got to look at the big picture because right now UCF women's basketball is... 11 and 8 and 3 and 4 in the conference uh 1 and 3 on the road and uh, in in the league and uh that is uh that's pretty frustrating I, it, it, they they just can't seem to close out these games on the road they lost by 1 at Tune Lane they lose by 2 at Temple and they got they did get blown out by Cincinnati but um, those are two games that I think they're going to look back at and really rue because, you know, I mean, three combined points at this stage. And, you know, now, and I have the RPI up, UCF right now is in the six, is in 59. They, that loss last night ended up dropping them three spots. Temple actually moved up four spots. So 
as of last night, it was 56 versus 57. UCF drops to 59. Temple drop, Temple moves up to 53. UCF still the third highest team in the American in the RPI. But Eric, what is this team missing right now? Consistency. Uh, Coach Abe said it on the postgame after the last home win. This team is finding consistency. They just don't have it. Even in this game, they fell behind early, came back, tied it up at the half at 30. You're feeling pretty good. And then the second half, Temple hits them with a run, and I think build the lead back up to double digits before UCF made a run back. So they just don't have the consistency. You mentioned they got beat at the boards. This team, really weird for a Coach Abe team, unlike past years, hasn't been good on the road. Uh, and you mentioned the Temple game, you know, the Tulane game. You know, that was kind of a bad break in that, you know, they, they were down one. They got a defensive stop. They got a rebound. But they didn't call timeout right away or weren't given the timeout right away. So a three or four extra seconds kind of ran off the clock. I watched it um, on replay, and, they you know, that kind of cost them because, you know, if you get three or four seconds, that's an extra few dribbles. You could have gotten a better shot at the end of that game. And here they just didn't – you know, it's tough. I mean, and I will say this, in talking to people that follow the league closely – this year, for whatever the reason, it's been a lot harder to win on the road in the league. Uh, teams, yeah. this has been a home court league this year, and and part of it I think is because there's these teams are so close. If you put UConn aside, everybody else is pretty much the same, and so it comes down to protecting your home court. And uh, UCF's going to have to do that now, coming back against SMU, who's coming off their best game uh, they've had in a while. They blew out Wichita State at home. So they, UCF's got to bounce back at home and then try to find a way to build a consistency here moving forward because uh, that's been their issue. It's just not been consistent effort on the road, and I think that's kind of frustrated the coaching staff. Yeah, well, I mean, right now they're, let's see, t- uh, right now they're sixth in the conference at three and four, tied for six with Houston and SMU. Ahead of them are uh, Temple, Cincinnati, USF, Tulane, and obviously uh, UConn. So this is... You know, th- th- this one was uh, was pretty frustrating. Uh, now, coming up on their schedule, again, they're back home Saturday to face uh, to face SMU before going out on the road for a pair, separated by a week. They're Wednesday at Tulsa, and then they got a week off, and then they're at Houston the following Wednesday before coming home for Cincinnati and USF. But um, I think you're right. Protecting the home court is going to be key. Nine and one. At home, the only loss to UConn, and that was by seven points. They're going to have to do so against SMU, but they're going to have to start picking up some road wins here because they are squarely on the bubble for the NCAA tournament. And well, I, I probably where they are, they might be on the outside looking got, in. Yeah, we got to table that conversation until this team proves they could play consistently right now. I mean, I would argue right now that Temple is ahead of them as far as the pecking order to be a second team in the American, assuming the league gets a second team into the NCAA tournament. That's also a big assumption, too. Right, correct. Um, But right now, I I think this team just has to find consistency. And until this team proves they can be consistent, uh, especially away from home, I I think those conversations are kind of a mood. And look, SMU, let's not sleep on this. This is a key home game for them. They're coming off a very good game. Kayla White, a dynamic player. For SMU to watch out for, you know, she averages 11 a game. So does uh, Janisha Cash. So this is, uh, you know, again, uh, SMU, they got to take care of SMU here and then go on the road, as you mentioned, to Tulsa. That's not going to be easy and find consistency here because, remember, UCF still got to go to UConn late in the year. They still got to play USF in Cincinnati. Um, I think they still host Temple. Uh, You can correct me if I'm wrong on that, Jeff. But Uh, Yes, um, they do. 
So that's the good news is you've still got a lot of marquee games ahead, but this team has to prove they can be consistent. Otherwise, uh, we're just going to be treading water here the rest of the way. Yeah, they're going to take a hit here on their RPI because these next two games, mm-hmm. SMU Tulsa, they're both of those teams are in the two hundreds as far as the as far as the RPI is concerned. Um, Houston is at one sixty in the third game uh, coming out. And by the way, Houston zero and seven on the road, uh, but eight and two at home this year. So, um, great example about this league. Yeah, that tells you that it. I feel like if you go through the the rest of the teams, you're going to see the similar. Uh, one-sided home versus away splits. Only, let's see here, one, two, three, four, te- three teams other than UConn have above 500 away records. Tulane at 5-1. and one. Uh, Cincy is 3-2. and two, And Temple's 5-3. and three. So that there you go. I mean, that's... That, that is remarkable, isn't it? That is yeah. absolutely remarkable. USF, by the way, 13-8, and 5-2 and two in the conference. They're 2-3 and three away from home. And they're eleven and one at home. So, so yeah, that's I mean, amazing. That's, that's amazing. The, the that's just it tells you the league, though. And that's you know, I think that is part of the reason why UCF hasn't fared as well on the road because everybody's very good at home and they're beating each other. I mean, that Houston, that Houston uh, ratio is wild. Yeah, I mean, eight and what is two and Houston, seven. <laughs> what is it about these Houston sports teams, Murph? They're so good at home and not so good as much on the road. It's almost like they have some advantages at home or something. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> Are we, are we are we now looking into a trash begging situation inside women's college? We may college have basketball? to. Can we can we like we may have to let the coaching staff know when they go to Houston on February twelfth. Be on the lookout in that Houston staff. Is there any trash cans? Any anything goofy going on? I don't know. There sorry, go. sorry. It's just a trash. Maybe, can. Well, anyway. maybe they, or maybe they just uh, they should just invite Dusty Baker, the new manager of the Astros. <laughs> Dusty Baker, God. Say 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 goodbye no, to I, that pit. Say goodbye to that pitching staff. <laughs> no, both of you were wrong. It's a good pick, and Dusty's prevalence of blowing out pitchers is overblown. All You're right, fine. all right. Well, we're gonna Transition. take it. Segue. We're gonna when we uh, when we come back. Guess what we're gonna talk about, folks? Baseball. Hey! Uh, baseball media day. Uh, over this past week, we'll hear from Joe Sheridan, and Murph will give us his uh, his take on uh, whether or not there was anything newsworthy at another UCF Media Day uh, when we return. This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. We're back after this. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Brian Murphy, Eric Lopez with you. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at UCF underscore Banneret. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Banneret. Uh, and as always, follow us at Black and Gold Banneret. We are UCF's home on SB Nation. Um, all right, baseball media day, Brian Murphy. Mm, Christmas in January. It, uh, it was uh, first of all, I think everybody should have been walking around wearing those little stickers that say "Hello, my name is," because there were only so many people that were there <laughs> that anyone recognized with all the turnover on the roster. But uh, but you were there. Um, and uh, you spoke with a uh, with a notable UCF pitcher who we haven't actually seen on the mound in a little while, and hopefully we might sooner uh, rather than later. Is that right? Oh, that is the that is the plan. And and yeah, Joe Sheridan, an Oviedo kid who grew up watching UCF baseball, and then burst onto the scene as one of the best freshmen, you know, in the conference and maybe in the nation in 2017 with the way he really was, you know, maybe the best pitcher on that staff that won the regular season conference title. Uh, and then in 2018, just lost his control and uh, went under the knife in May of 2018 
for a torn labrum in his left throwing shoulder and has not pitched since. It's been more than 500 days since Joe Sheridan uh, has been uh, been on a mound, but he's rehabbing. He's on his way. The plan is uh, he says he's 100%, but co- talking to Coach Lovelady, it seems a little more cautious, but it does seem like he's on track to, to, be, to be ready. If not at the start of the year, then maybe very early on. Um, but I got to talk to Joe about what these last you know 20 months have been like and he was very honest very open about uh his recovery his rehab the helpless feeling he had in 2018 uh pitching you know when he knew something was wrong but not really sure what it was and i think most eye-opening is how he almost called the diagnosis of the torn labrum he he basically called it a relief without wanting to call it as much of a relief but you'll hear it now in this interview with Joe Sheridan why he thinks having a torn labrum in 2018 was almost a silver lining. Just you're coming back from injury. So let's go to the very basics. Labrum tear in your left shoulder, correct? Posterior, yep. Posterior labrum tear. And you, when did you go under the knife specifically? May 31st of 2018. So the couple days after the conference tournament of my sophomore year. How how trying was that season for you leading up to the injury diagnosis? Because you had lost your control a little bit. Were you feeling any pain and a lot of that going into that? Yeah, so a big part of that was I was probably hurt for pretty much the second half of the season. The second week of conference against Memphis was kind of the first time where I was throwing the ball where I was like, oh boy, like I don't really know what's going on here and I was throwing it and uh, I just really had no idea what my body was doing or where it was going. So I was trying to kind of battle through that uh, for the second half of the season and obviously the results weren't there and you try to tell yourself you're not hurt and keep going out there for the team. But uh, it was kind of a relief when I found out that I had to have surgery. Obviously not a relief, but just to know that it wasn't that I I'm not good at baseball anymore, so, uh, but the effects were still there kind of mentally and coming back, it was a big thing where just trying to get that feel for the baseball again and know that I'm a good player was uh, a thing that took a long time for me to get back, so. It's really interesting you say that. It must feel so helpless to know that you don't know where the ball's going and there's nothing you can really do to stop it because your body just is betraying you. Yeah, I think helpless, I was trying to think of a word because I knew this day was coming up, so I was trying to think of a word to describe it and helpless would definitely be good. Yeah. And the other teams weren't helping me at all because I didn't throw a strike for like three months, but they kept swinging, so they kept throwing me out there, and I was like, come on, guys, like somebody give me a break here to stop swinging. But, uh, yeah, uh, it's been a long road back, and there's been a lot of ups and downs, but I feel like now that I've been at what I think is the down of downs, I think it'll make the up of ups that much better and make me such a better player. You know, the, the common theme is the shoulder rehab is much tougher than an elbow rehab. But for you, how has it been these last was 22, 20, 19 months, 21 months? Long time. Yeah. <laughs> What's the rehab been like for you? Uh, early on, it was really tough. Uh, everybody's got different opinions. Everybody knows different stuff, but everybody's trying to help. So uh, finding the people that I could really trust. I was up in Cincinnati all summer uh, with a guy who specializes in PRI, which is Postural Restoration Institute, which mm-hmm. is kind of a new thing that... Uh, really kind of revitalized and regenerated my career because I was pretty much out of the game last May. I was throwing balls as hard as I could, and they were 71 miles an hour. So uh, I went up there with a guy named Josh Elman all summer, and he kind of uh, got me back into the game and got me back to a place where I could start uh, practicing again just to do the rehab to get back. So uh, And then my dad does physical therapy, so I was working with him a lot. But uh, 
Yeah, it's been a long road back. <laughs> when did you feel like the old Joe Sheridan, the Joe Sheridan 2017 even? I think uh, even fall was tough. There was a lot of ups and downs in fall. Obviously coming back after not pitching for 17 months, you're not gonna come back and sure. be what you once were right away. But uh, I got after it this winter break, worked on a lot of stuff mechanically and uh, health-wise and doing the things I needed to do. And coming back in the spring, the first couple outings I've had have been really good. So I'm starting to get that feeling more and more every day. Has the surgery and the injury changed you at all as a pitcher as far as your repertoire or mechanics, anything like that? The repertoire is the same, but I think the mindset's a little bit different as far as uh, I know I'm not untouchable now or invincible or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, but I think with my confidence wavering, obviously, a lot during the rehab, and now I feel like when it comes back more and more every time I throw, I feel like my confidence is going to be so much higher than it ever was, which is kind of one of the reasons that I am able to perform the way that I am. So I'm excited to see how it turns out on the field in real games this year. So Are you on track to be a part of that week of rotation in February? Uh, that's, that's a question for 2-3. I don't know. We got a lot of good guys. I think we got like eight starters that are all even across the board right now so we'll see how we stack up but uh even that competition on the team right now there's a lot of guys who can compete for a lot of spots and it's going to be exciting but i think the general general consensus the general focus of that question is uh, could you pitch right now or in two weeks three weeks if you had to oh yeah absolutely yeah. i'm healthy i'm 100 percent uh just as ready as all the other guys and we're all working towards opening day so are you a butterflies guy like when you step out on the mound you get a little nervous and maybe if it's 18 months off do you feel like you'll be even more nervous i wouldn't say nervous uh I would say don't really know what to expect, but mm -hmm. I think that's kind of one of the things that drives me is you never know. Like you go out in baseball and throw a perfect pitch and get hit five home runs off you and you could throw a terrible pitch and strike out five guys in a row. So that kind of never knowing what to expect and just going out there and doing the best you can is kind of what drives me. And uh, yeah, I haven't, I've never really gotten nervous, but uh, just kind of the fear of the unknown is something that drives me. Where did you undergo surgery at the city or hospital you went in? It was uh, Dr. Randy Schwartzberg at not Florida Hospital. I don't know. I don't know what it's called. But it's somewhere in Orlando. <laughs> yeah, basically. he's our he, Jewett doesn't have an elbow guy, okay. so he does elbows, and my dad's worked with him for a long time. So, so now that you know what it feels like to sort of lose everything, lose control, what does it feel like now to be just be out there and just feel healthy? And what's it feel mentally to know that you're healthy? It's kind of like a relief at the same time, mm -hmm. and also it's a big confidence thing because uh, when you feel like you have, you've lost everything that you were. My freshman year, I felt like I was on top of the world and nobody would ever hit me and stuff like that. And then my sophomore year, I felt like I was the worst player ever. So it's kind of been a long road back, and the confidence is getting better every day, and it feels really good to be back there. Sounds like a humbling experience almost. Oh, right? for sure, yeah. It was a humbling 17 months just... Yeah. I think when I did the math, it was 505 days from surgery to my first live outing again. So it was a long time of just sitting and thinking and trying to figure out where my next steps were going to be and what steps I was going to take to uh, get back to where I am now. As you look at the staff as a whole, maybe who has stood out to you in preseason practice, fall balls, things like that? Yeah, we just got a grad transfer from Nebraska, Chad yeah. Linsman, who's going to be a really good piece for us. Uh, he's come in, his fastball is really good, off-speed is really good. and. Uh, we got a freshman, Hunter Pattison, lefty, mm -hmm. who really commands his stuff and he's got really good stuff. And then some, uh, I wouldn't, funky guys, Billy McKay, who <laughs> we kind of been missing that in the past, like a submarine guy who can come in and get good outs and big outs for us. And then, uh, yep, for the staff. That's good. That's a good piece right there. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Joe. Have a good one. Okay, thanks. So there's Joe Sheridan. Uh, again, he says he's 100%. Uh, but I, I, you know, when we talked to Coach Lovelady, he said that the Sheridan's velo, his velocity, 
is not quite there yet, but certainly you should expect him to be a part of this team's weekend rotation that, you know, as we learned on media day, I think Coach Lovelady thinks he has a lot of options going into the season as far as the pitching staff with not just returners like like Trevor Holloway, um, but also the grad transfer they brought in from Nebraska, Chad Lindsman, and then you've got freshmen like Hunter, Pat, Hunter Pattinson, Hunter Pattinson, and then transfer guys like Billy McKay, who could be used, you know, in a, in a bullpen role, uh, but as a submariner, which I think is very interesting because we don't really see many submarine pitchers anymore. I, I think the one thing that came out of this mini day that uh, I think was most encouraging, and you could start sort of read it on Lovelady's face, was just you know after a year in which they dealt with so many pitching injuries. They have a lot of guys they think can really fit in, maybe up to 10 or 12 guys, uh, or at least eight in the rotation possible. And then the bullpen, double digits worth of guys who could who could contribute in some way. And, and for them to be this deep, um, it's, a, it's a 180 from where they were at the end of last season. So where – oh, go ahead, uh, well, Eric. I'm sorry. This. I mean, let, me, let me just say this about Sheridan since you talked to him. I mean – I think he's a big factor. I mean, who knows what he looks like when he comes on the mound? He's 100%, Murph. But, I mean, you we, you saw him. We both saw him when he was 100% and what he meant to the team in 2017. He was a big part of them leading them to the conference championship. To have a guy that's pitched in those type of moments is super valuable here and could be a huge difference and a boost, even if he's not close to uh, 100%, maybe even an 80% charity. Because I thought Lovelady mentioned an interesting point about – uh, immediate about too much focus about the velocity and things it doesn't matter if you can't make the you know the the, the hitter swing and miss like make the barrel the bat miss there i mean you could throw right. 100 miles but if they hit the bat hit it with the ball then you're screwed so he's able to make guys swing and miss which is very because of his positioning of the pitches that's huge if they can get him back uh even remotely close to what he was be a huge boost for this team in whatever role they have for him yeah, and talking to both Lovelady and uh, catcher ben, Mc- ben McCabe, they both have said you know really uh, high things about Sheridan's stuff. Not the velocity, but just the stuff, the curveball, the changeup that he's really well known for. That's there. I mean, he, they really like where the stuff is at, even if it's not at 100% as far as velocity goes. But like I said, Eric, you don't have to th- you don't have to throw hard to be successful in this game. It's deception. It's movement. I mean, it's location. It's not about speed. If it was about if it was about throwing 100 miles an hour, then every pitcher who threw a flat fastball would be great. But obviously, we know that's not true. But Sheridan is more of a crafty pitcher. He's a crafty lefty, even though he's what 21 years old, 20 years old. Uh, he's a crafty lefty. He's a, he's a, he mixes it up. He wants to get you out of this changeup, and that right there, uh, right now, is there. That's back. They say that's back to where it was in 2017, and that's most encouraging. Yeah. Well. I mean, right now we're two weeks away from, wow, already, huh? Two weeks away from the start of baseball. Friday, February 14th, two weeks and one day from when we're recording this. So, Sienna, back in town, baby. Bring bring back the Saints. Because they're they're, they're coming back. Two two quick things before we uh, end here, Murph. Um, And we're going to get into this a lot in the leading up to that especially in our baseball preview. Because, I mean, obviously, Jeff joked about it at the open of the segment about all the new faces, especially on offense. But yeah. I got a sense that Greg's very confident with the pitching that he has and the pitchers returning. Of course, you know, Naka would be healthy. But is this the better problem to have? In other words, isn't it better to have guys back and have 
feel good about your pitching staff and have questions offensively than the other way around where you, you have no idea who's going to pitch, but you might have more position players. Because if you don't pitch in, in any level of baseball, you got no chance. And I think that was the thing that I took away from media day, what Greg had to say. He feels pretty good. First of all, he feels good about what he has position-wise. They're just young. But he really yeah. likes his pitching staff to carry this team. And I think as long as they have the depth and quality in pitching, I think they're going to be fine and maybe better than maybe some people think. Well, I think Greg is always – Greg is – I mean, I think the one staple that he has shown over his few years here is he wants a loaded, uh, competent bullpen with a number, of, a number of guys coming at you. He wants to mix things up, give you different looks, uh, and I think that's where his team is based. And he, where he wants the team to always be based. I think he's got that again. Again, guys need to stay healthy. But obviously you have Jeffrey Higginson in the back end. Uh, guys coming back healthy like Nolan Lipkowski. Um, and, and then, you know, the new new guys like Billy McKay, as I mentioned. Jackson Clare could be a swing man. Uh, you know, so guys like that. And they put that all together. I think that's where they need to win first. The hitting he knows will take a while to come along. He even said... You know, he said, quote, it's really scary, quote unquote, about the sort of lack of experience in this offense right now. There's basically one guy that's assured of a starting spot uh, in this offense who was here for major playing time last year. That's Dalton Wingo in right field. Other than that, you probably will have eight guys uh, in this lineup who either didn't play much last year or were not here last year at all. So he knows the pitching has to win games for this team. At least, for the, at least for the first couple of months uh, before conference season really gets going. Um, but I, I think with the depth, as I mentioned, and, and the guys and the possibilities and the, the different looks that, they, that his pitchers give opponents, I think he's comfortable with where he's at on that end, certainly. All right. So yeah, no, I, that's going to be interesting there. Now, you know, by the way, Murph, are you going to address, address the, the, the elephant in the room? Because I, I was blown away. I've never seen you get bombarded on social media with people criticizing you, Murph, for not asking the question to Greg Lovelady that everybody wanted to know, that Knight fans wanted to know, people like me wanted to know, Murph. Oh, God. You get to ask the question. Oh, Murph, no. Would you like to address it? I did not. So I asked a lot of questions of Greg Lovelady on Media Day. I did not ask him, as we asked him last year. Me and er me, Eric, you were there. We asked him the same question last year, but I decided not to ask him this year. I did not ask him who did he – think was going to win the Royal Rumble which of course was this past Sunday uh, but because of the of the uh, of, of the quell on on Twitter and, and the number of people that wanted to know uh, you know uh, I, and shout out to Bailey Adams who kind of tagged love lady in a tweet uh, love lady ended up responding and did say I think hours before the Royal Rumble that his pick was edge with kind of a shrug emoji and and I will admit uh, that was a pick that, that was a pick a bold call and for a guy in edge who not only came back but was only the third he was, he was the third to last guy out or no he's the second to last guy out of that match it was a pretty good call yeah well <laughs> all right so i'm glad we got that out of our way um again baseball season starts on valentine's day on but still very good pick. on very february good. 14th uh, as I tried desperately to pull us out of this nosedive of a segment. Congrats to Coach Lovelady, though, on a great pick. And I recommend, if you go to the archives, Black and Go Benaret, Murph did a great feature, what was it, two years ago, on Lovelady and Re Wrestling. That's why we bring this up every so often. That's why. This is. Right. But now I'm in an in-depth piece. Wonderful. Splendid. Uh, 
when WrestleMania was here in Orlando, and yes. he went to it, and uh, we uh, we we did a, a sit down, and Eric, you were there. He we talked yes. to him for a good forty minutes. Amazing, about amazing stuff. Amazing. Yeah. Hey Jeff, yes. we're addressing the audience. We didn't we didn't bring it up. The fans brought. It, I saw Merv was bombarded with tweets. I'm not even making this up. I was stunned. I mean, Murph, you probably were caught off guard too. I did not expect I did not expect there to be an actual interest into what Greg Lovelady's pick for the Royal Rumble was, but sure enough, there was. And it's a lesson learned, Jeffrey. It's a lesson learned that going forward, for as long as Greg Lovelady is in this position, and we continue to hold Baseball Media Day on the week of Royal Rumble, it's a question that must be asked: yeah. Who does Greg, who does Greg have winning the Royal Rumble? Riveting, because also. He got it right in 2019. He picked Seth yeah. Rollins and got it right. Call me up when CM Punk is back in the ring. Um, we've no, got I'm some... Normie. <laughs> <You're such a> <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Um, we do have, by the way, we talked about Joe Sheridan's um, injury news, and there is some good injury news that we want to uh, share. Um, so Mackenzie uh, Milton, we were expecting an update on him this month. And uh, his mom, Teresa, uh, posted an Instagram photo uh, yesterday, said, Last day of brace, uh, checkup went amazing. He will run, jump, and throw his amazing passes. God is faithful in all things. Now, Mackenzie, ever the faithful son, uh, did post a, an update shortly thereafter um, saying, Just clearing the air, not out of a brace completely, just moving to a more functional sports-specific brace to be able to run and jump. God bless y'all. Um, so, first of all, really good news for Mackenzie Milton that he'll be in, a, in an athletics-approved um, brace um, when we consider, you know, how much time he has spent, um, you, you know, in in what was actually a full leg brace. So this is this is some pretty encouraging uh, encouraging news. No, Murph? Absolutely, and it, it, it's right on track with what he told us when we met him in November, that this was sort of the next step in his rehab, is getting out of this brace and into a a, a more sports-specific brace, and he's right on he's right line with where, what he said then. So as we continue to watch his recovery, he'll continue to, I'm sure, update us. He or Teresa uh, will continue to update us uh, with, with his progress, and certainly uh, UCF fans will take every update they can get because it's just – I mean, we, we always keep thinking about, can you imagine, can you imagine uh, Mackenzie Milton making that comeback and what that scene would be like? Yeah, and this I is mean, just another step on that road. Right. So, again, I, I think Mackenzie struck the right note in being, you know, fairly cautionary about it. He's like, look, this is good news. It's not that I'm completely out of a brace. Everybody calm down. But I'm going to be wearing, I'm going to be wearing a brace, just one that's approved for running and jumping and doing all sorts of conditioning work. So, um, again... Happy for Milton. Hoping he's, uh, you know, hoping he continues to recover and recover well. So um, that's good news. And uh, some other UCF quarterback news that uh, uh, let's let's drop this Murph bomb right now. Uh, Quadri Jones. Bomb. Yep. No. Qua- Quadri Jones is it's happening, Murph. I'm not gonna let you. I'm not gonna I let you. Break, I didn't break this. Plan. I didn't break any part of this. Oh, that's right. You didn't break it. But anyway, I'm going to give it... I'm, it I think it qualifies as a Murph bomb anyway. Oh, uh, God. Quadri Jones is back at UCF. Um, he reportedly uh, actually was enrolled at Alabama State. And, uh, well, 
didn't like it there. So he left and re-enrolled at UCF, and now he's back. He's back in the quarterback room. Um, Murph, what's your insight on uh, if, 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 if on why was it buyer's remorse? Like, what, what what happened here? I think this is something that, you know, hopefully they allow us to talk to Quadri during spring ball, uh, which should start here within the next month or so. Uh, and we'll, we can dig. We can dig deeper into this. Uh, I, I, you know, we don't. We really don't know the exact reason for why he had such a quick turn of, of, of about face. You know, within weeks of, of committing to Alabama State and then coming back to UCF. And of course, the the night that he, you know, or you know, commit, basically the night that the the word was broken that he's back at UCF. UCF gets a twenty gets a commitment. From a uh, from a 2020 quarterback, Parker Navarro, out of Phoenix, which they needed one anyway because you, we talked about how thin that QB room is with only you know Dan, Dylan Gabriel, Daryl Mack, and and the recovering Mackenzie Milton. They needed another quarterback. Well, then they got two on the same day. <laughs> Jones <laughs> returned, and Navarro joined the program through a commitment. And so now that QB room looks a lot deeper. Yeah, uh, so, what, suddenly there are more people in the room, which is good. <laughs> right. What it means for Quadri, we don't really know as far as on field. I mean, he could probably just end up being a third stringer again and, and sort of a gimmick guy, which we've kind of seen him be. Whether he's – but maybe it's just more about him being comfortable. Back in at home, obviously, as a, a Jones high grad, Orlando kid, spending his college years in Orlando, maybe that just is, is better for him as a person. And I think people fret about, well, he's not going to play much. If he sticks at UCF, yeah, but if, if if he didn't feel right about leaving here and he wanted to come back because this is where he felt best as a person, as a scholar, to finish his college and, and to live here, that's what's really important. It's not really about, well, he could play more at Alabama State. Yeah, I get that. He probably would have. He was started for them. But if he didn't feel it was right and he feels more comfortable here, then then that's there's really no other argument to be had. Right. I mean, whatever the the, the... – uh, my stance on this kind of thing is always the same, and it's with the same the same with any player who you know goes into or leaves the transfer portal is, look wherever they feel comfortable going to school, go to school there. Okay, it's you know we think of it as free agency for you know, but it, you know non athletes, you know you can transfer schools however you want based on whatever you want, and if you feel more comfortable being somewhere else, awesome, best of luck, finish your degree. And you know, th- and thank you for for your contributions. On the other hand, if you come back, awesome, great, love it. We love you here. We, you know, it's everyone keep perspective that these are kids in college, please. Um, so, and by the way, we get to get. Well, the one thing is, uh, I guess the one bummer about it is, you know, if Quadri does play more, um, his passer rating is going to go down, quite possibly. Uh, he is for his UCF career. Four for four for 120 yards, two touchdowns for an for a passer rating of 517.0. So, um, but those are the risks you take. <laughs> I know, I know those stats are what's most important to you. Yes, it's all about the numbers. The numbers don't lie. Um, all right, we're gonna take a break. When we come back, Taco Fall back in town uh, as a member of the Boston Celtics. Uh, we hear from him uh, pretty, prior to his uh, game with the Orlando Magic. Uh, and we wrap up some other things around the world of UCF sports as well. Stick around. We'll be right back. 
We're back here on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Brian Murphy, Eric Lopez. Uh, let's wrap up a few things here before we go away. Taco Fall, back in town. The Boston Celtics called him up uh, for their game at the Orlando Magic earlier uh, this week. Taco did not play because the game was close, uh, unfortunately. Um, well, fortunately, if you're an Orlando Magic fan, I guess if, if Taco Fall is in the game, um, well, that could have gone one of two ways. Anyway, I've totally derailed the intro. But anyway, Eric Lopez, you were there. Um, the the uh, it, it was good to see him again, and uh, and you caught up with him at the uh, at the Magic game, right? I did. I caught up with Taco Fall in the pregame prior to that Celtics Magic game on Friday night. It's been an interesting rookie year for Taco Fall. He's been bouncing back and forth between the Celtics roster and the G League roster in Maine. And I talked to him about that. What? How is that adjustment going for him as well? As what has he learned since his days at UCF to now in the NBA? What's the biggest thing he learned? As well as what does he think of the current Knights team? And what did Johnny Dawkins teach him uh, uh, that he's using now? Uh, in this process here of his professional career. Here is Taco Fall on the Black and Gold Banneret. So uh, you're back here in Orlando here on the regular season game. What's this yeah, like for you? It's kind of a quick turnaround. Um, it's it's great. It's great. Like I, like I say, it's pretty much a homecoming for me. Um, grew up, pretty much grew up in Orlando, um, became a man here. And, um, I'm really fortunate, you know, for the opportunity to come here and play in front of this crowd again. What's the process like? Because you're playing in Maine. You've, you've done this before this season where you've gone back and forth. Just mm-hmm. take us through that. What is that like? Um, it's a grind, but like, at the same time, it's, it's a blessing. Um, you know, you get the opportunity to, you know, play play with these guys, but at the same time, go, go play in the G League and get a lot of playing time and keep getting better. Um, so that whenever my name is called here, I'm ready to contribute. So um, I'm, it's helping my game. I'm getting I'm getting better every day, and then I'm really looking forward to you know what the future brings. What's the biggest thing you've learned since the start of the season when you came here in the preseason? From now, what is the biggest thing you've learned? Um, just a lot. The pro life is very different uh, from college, uh, from anything that I've experienced. So just getting adjusted to that and uh, learning more about my game, learning more about my body and how to take care of it and everything. How do you feel you're a better player today than you were uh, when you arrived with Boston in the summer league? Uh, my confidence is definitely a, a lot up there because now I've, I have a couple games, you know, of my sleeves. So um, that, and I feel better physically. My getting in better shape every day, even though there's still another step to take. Uh, I feel stronger, uh, and like I'm, I just being a student of the game, trying to learn as much as possible from my teammates, the coaching staff, and I've been really fortunate to have good coaches like Jay. Um, he's been working with me pretty much all the time, and when I go back, when I go to Maine as well, I got good people out there. But it's been a fun process. You mentioned Jay Laranega. How has yeah. he helped you? Because I know he works with your shot. I've seen him in warm-ups with you either uh, when you here in the preseason. What has that been like working with him? Um, it's been amazing. Joe uh, Jay doesn't put you in the box. Like he just because Jay just go. He, first of all, he makes you have, like he lets you have fun, and he makes he's, he has made the process really fun. And like I said, he has helped my game tremendously as well. How do you handle the fanfare? Everything you do now is on social media in Maine. You're popular up there. I mean, you got a lot of votes for the NBA All-Star. Does it kind of, is it wild? You get all these ovations when you, like, step into the court and things. I mean, I always try to sit back and reflect on that and see how blessed and fortunate I am. And I'm really thankful, you know, for the, for all these people that, um, come on, Grant. For, you know, all those people that, you know, 
care care about me, care about my journey, and want to want to see me do well. And um, I want you know I always keep I always like tell them thank you and um, you know their 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 support doesn't go. I'm waiting on Have you been able to follow the UCF team this year and how they're winning? What's been your thoughts when you've been able to see? I've oh, yeah. watched a couple of games. Um, Coach Dawkins is a great coach, and uh, I feel like he's doing a great job. And though, though he's going to help those guys play hard. Um, he, he has built the culture, yep, and they're they just going to keep getting better. What's the biggest thing you learned from Coach Dawkins? Um, patience. Uh, a lot of patience. And uh, just be yourself. Go out there, play hard. And that was Taco Fall in the pregame there. I got to talk to him there in the locker room, and uh, great to catch up with him. He's such a great spirit. Not, you know, we I didn't I mentioned him off the air about how he made our all-decade team in basketball, and he was kind of like, really? Like, I was blown away. He was really touched by that. Very appreciative. But, you know, you, you heard there at the end, he talked about patience. That's what he learned from Johnny Dawkins, guys. And I think that's important. That's a great word to describe Taco right now in the NBA because you know I was I was at the Celtics game and I've seen some people on social media why isn't he playing what and this is a patience there's going to be a lot of patience here uh he's still a project he's still learning uh Celtics are not just going to throw him out there just for the sake of it they're going to make it valuable when they play him and I think patience is a good word with him he's improved he talked about that one of the things he's worked on he talked about working with Jay Jay Larinaga who's the assistant in Boston of course the son of Jim Laranega, the head coach in Miami. But patience is a word, I think, that's very well when it comes to Taco as far as his career. Uh, but he's in a good situation with Boston there. They know what they're doing over there with Brad Stevens and Danny Ainge and the Celtics brass. Uh, I think he's in a good spot. I think he's happy. Uh, and he was, you know, he's just, he's really enjoying this process. And that's what he has to do. And I think that's the right approach to have, guys. And uh, we hope for the best for him. Remember, Boston will come back in April, late April, towards the end of the regular season to play the Magic, and who knows, could be an opening round playoff matchup, Celtics-Magic in the playoffs. So we might see Taco back uh, one or two more times here, not counting perhaps trips to him to go into Lakeland when his uh, main team takes on Lakeland in the G League. So uh, good good to catch up with him. Well, uh, for the Celtics this season, he's played in four games. Uh, He has scored... Uh, or he's averaging 4.3 points per game. He scored a total of 17 on 8 of 11 shooting and a total of 21 minutes um, on the floor. I'm trying to pull up his uh, G League stats um, with the uh, with the main red claws here, but um, he's he he's again filling up the stat sheet here for for the red claws. I'm blowing it up right now. He's played in 17 games. He's come off the bench in 16 of them. But he's averaging 13.5 points, 10.4 rebounds, and 2.9 blocks per game in about 23 minutes uh, per contest. So he's 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 filling up the stat sheet. By the way, he's also shooting 72%, which is right in line with where he was in college. So he's, I mean, he's playing well in the opportunities he's being given in the G League, too. And, and that's why... You know, Boston keeps bringing him up. I think they were doing him a favor to bring him up here in Orlando, but um, but he's playing pretty well, I think, down there at least for for a rookie. Is that right? Yes, yes. He's he's doing what he's got. He, you know, he's he's a, and he's a popular player. Oh, he's beloved uh, was, up there. He's it, it's funny up there, and when he gets called up here. Now you mentioned he got called up. Enos Cancer was out for that Magic game. So was mm. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. So they were shorthanded. So they kind of needed needed the bodies, but. 
Uh, and Murph, you know this because you you were there with me in the preseason game. Like Grant Williams, the other rookie for the Celtics, played at Tennessee. He's really tight with Grant. Like when I was interviewing Taco, Grant was trying to distract him. I think it, there might be a part in the interview where you heard him pause a little bit. That's because Grant Williams is making all these facials on him, trying to get him to crack. Uh, they have this; their, their locker rooms are next to each other. But that's the cool thing about it is even you know he's coming in and coming out because there's only a limit of how many days he could spend with the Celtics before they have to make a decision on him. they had they want to keep it under I believe it's 45 days with the big roster otherwise they're, they're, that two-way contract kind of changes a little bit but even, even though when he pops in a pop out he's so popular with the guys and they embrace him and and, and he has that, that kind of an infection in there in the locker room which is not that common when it comes to rookies and you're you know and veterans are concerned across that roster which they have a lot of great ro- uh, veterans but him and Grant Williams, Murph, have really been tight. Yeah, no, it, well, two things. One, uh, Taco Fall does not have an infection. It's it's infectious. Just I really Thank wanted you. to clear that up. That really bothered me for a second. This has uh, been your Boston Celtics injury update. Thank you, Murph. Go this, ahead. Yeah, it's just difficult. But, yeah, no, you can hear him in the interview. And, and the question about how he deals with the fanfare that you asked, Eric, and as he's answering that question, you can hear Taco go, well, come on, Grant. Like, he just interrupts because <laughs> Grant's behind Lopez trying to, like, get, trying to distract Taco. And Taco, at that moment, wasn't having having anything to do with it. But you can, like, those guys are just really, really close-knit and, and love to play, you know, play and get along. So, um, but, no, it's, it's great to see Taco. I know people are so happy that he was called back up for this, for this game in Orlando, even though it doesn't really fit the narrative of, well, the Celtics called him up to, because he used to play college ball down the road. Like, no, they called him up because they had no other front court player. They really needed someone to, to be on their bench for depth. Um, but at least it was great to see him. And although he didn't play, he was, as I wrote on the site, I don't think that really ma- I mean, it would have been lovely if he played, but the fans turned out. You could see him on the bench and in warmups and, and he was obviously still grateful to be there regardless. He This trip did mean a lot, or that game meant a lot to him to, for him to be there. I mean, he had been circling that on his calendar. He wanted to be there. For, so for him to get that opportunity was was uh, was nice in itself. He was active. He was active on the roster. So his he shows up on the roster there, a box score, that he was at, at the Amway Center. And that's a big deal. I mean, you know, for, for a kid that's growing up here, uh, lately playing high school in the college ball, that's – that's pretty significant. By the way, the cool thing about it, our, our interview was was done. A guy that was waiting to introduce, to talk to him, was a famous soccer player, Theon. Uh, uh, how do you say it, Jeffrey? Thierry Henry. Thank you. Thierry Henry. He just walked into the Celtic locker room. He's friends with Evan Fournier of the Orlando Magic, but he went in there and actually spoke to Taco. I don't know if they knew each other or he just wanted to introduce himself to Taco. But he talked to Taco. I left him alone, obviously. Uh, and uh, but that also speaks to the popularity of Taco. People are still are interested in this in him, and, and just getting to see him in person and talking to him. You know, I wrote about this when we he was here for the preseason. How he's the most popular UCF athlete right now in sports. Did you see and, he finished? He finished what uh, I I forget exactly where he finished in the um, NBA All Star voting. I think he was in the top fifteen, but. There were uh, yeah. the, the the voting goes fans, media, and players, and they all have varying weights. But um, this fan votes were in the six digits. No media voted for him, but seven players voted for him. Which I thought I'm like, and I posted that up on Twitter. I was like, I need to know who these seven players are because they're national heroes. 
Well, I guarantee you, I mean, Murph, wouldn't you agree that at least a couple of those are Celtic players? And I would like to think, I think Grant, I could see Grant Williams being one of them, not to, you know, they'll never admit any of that stuff, but I would have to believe a couple of those are probably his teammates, probably. Absolutely, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, so so uh, it was good to catch up with Taco there. Hopefully we'll see him again. Hopefully he'll get some more playing time as the season progresses and we see him again uh, when the Celtics return to And by the way, also, Orlando. if you're rooting interest standpoint, because I, ta- I confirmed this with some of the Celtics people I talked to, if the Celtics were to win an NBA title, or get, let's say win the Eastern Conference, which is not crazy. I mean, I think they're one of the three best teams in the East alongside the Milwaukee Bucks and the Philadelphia 76ers, and you can make an argument Celtics are top five, top six in the league. If they were to win the title or get some sort of ring, Taco would be eligible. For he gets a ring, right? Yeah, because he was on the active roster. So, uh huh. So. All right. Um, no Celtics. Couple, <laughs> not going to catch me saying that. A uh, couple of updates from uh, uh, from uh, other UCF sports as well. So uh, UCF track uh, is uh, already in the midst of their indoor season. Uh, their most recent um, meet was at the. Uh, or, or rather, uh, oh no, here it is. This is the Rod McCravey Invitational, which was hosted by uh, the University of Kentucky. Um, five top ten finishes for the Knights there, including uh, Cheyenne Hyde, who uh, is who is turned into one of uh, probably UCF's best sprinter. Uh, she's finished second in the uh, 60 meter finals, um, and uh, UCF also got some strong uh, performances from Victoria Young in the uh, in the 3,000 meters, and uh, Jamie Tomasetti as well, uh, finishing 11th and 12th, respectively. So uh, something to keep an eye on as the season progresses. Um, also, tennis. All right, so all right, Eric Lopez. Here you go. You're the one who stays up until four in the morning watching the Australian Open. Me- meanwhile, um, that's UCF. That's why I miss. I misspoke on the Taco Fall, which uh, Murph corrected me on. Yeah, and I'm not a many hours sleep watching Novak Djokovic beat Roger. This is this is this is strictly self-inflicted, by the way. But men's tennis is uh, is two and two. They finished off the ITA kickoff weekend out in LA at the LA Tennis Center, uh, splitting with San Diego and UCLA. They beat San Diego, who's ranked number 24 in the ITA, 4-3, to three, and then lost to number 10, UCLA, 4-3. to three. They are on the road in Winston-Salem uh, to play Wake Forest. Wake Forest is ranked number 7 on uh, Friday. Um, in the uh, Oracle ITA Division One men's team tennis rankings, UCF right now, is not ranked. They are receiving votes, but they are not ranked in the top 25. Their counterparts on the women's side uh, are 2-1. and one. They are number 15 in the ITA um, rankings. They, uh, as I'm pulling up their schedule right here, yeah, here it is. They spent their uh, ITA kickoff weekend in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, at the home of the Wolverines. They beat Utah 4-3. They lost to number 15, Michigan 4-2. They are home at the USCA National Campus to play Florida State, who's ranked number 9 on Friday. And then they play Texas A&M, number 18, on Sunday at home. So they are... Is that uh, our trip, Jeff? You've said last week we're going this year. Is this the weekend we're going? I got to check the calendar here because I want to make sure that I got nothing scheduled because the wife schedules me for things here. I, I might be able to do... You know, I'm, I want to try and do Sunday. I want to try and do Sunday. Murph, what do you think? What's, like, what what day? Like, the That's ninth? the Texas A&M game. That's the second, not the ninth. The other one that might be an That's option would be... Simple, Jeff. Huh? The noonies. 
It's only it's at noon, Murph. It's at noon. What are you gonna worry about missing the first couple hours of eight hundred hours of pregame show? I mean, I'm spending time with family, aka oh, eating. Oh. That's fair. That's fair. I get it. Uh, we got well, we got, Ole Miss, Ole, Miss Ole Miss at home. We got we got Ole Miss on uh, on February twenty first. We got either TCU, Nebraska, or UCSB on Sunday the sixteenth. So there's some good Sunday games coming up. Texas on March fifteenth. That might be an option. Um, yeah, we got we got some options coming up here. Um, well, are they going to do the uh, the tennis channel thing again? Uh, I would assume so. I, I hope think so. They will do that. I would assume. I haven't seen anything official yet, but I would assume that uh, they would do that, considering the tennis channel has uh, they actually have a setup there where they can do shows from there. So yeah. I would assume yes, that will come once they get past the Australian Open coverage and things like that. But yeah, I would assume that's going to happen here. Right. picking up pretty soon so all right i'm excited i'm excited we're gonna do this texas that's pretty good too i mean uh, we're gonna have to just break down that schedule but texas uh is that the women's or the men's team that's the women's team okay they're very With, they, the men uh they're playing fau or excuse me sunday they're at virginia uh then they're at illinois february 9th and saturday february 29th leap day they're home for fau and then sunday they play stetson march the 1st those are uh, those are early matches, by the way. Two o'clock for FAU. Stetson's at eleven a.m. I might be able to pull that one off. Eleven a.m. Well, we'll see. Maybe we'll bring Connor down, show him some tennis. That might be fun. Uh, and then uh, just a couple quick updates. By the way, haven't heard anything from men's golf yet because they don't start their season until the day after Valentine's Day. Um, the uh, uh, they are playing uh, the Gator Invitational uh, that day, two day event, February sixteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth up in Gainesville. Women's golf uh, starts their season February second at home at Eagle Creek Golf Club. They have the UCF Challenge on February third, excuse me, second through the fourth. So, and with that, we are all caught up. All right, boys, what you got coming up this week, Murph? What do you have? I'm going to Tampa. What about you? Uh, I'm. <laughs> it's great. That's her. You sound excited, Murph. Yeah, you sound no. Eric, you know my history with Tampa. Rarely do things go well for me. <laughs> I hope your AAA membership is updated. Just hope and pray. <laughs> hope and pray. Just that's all. That's all I care. Listen, here's what you do. Like, so you're going to be at the Yingling Arena, right? So just contact yes. Colin Sherwin. You know, if things don't go well, just give him a call and you'll be taken care of. You'll be all right. If I get pulled over. Like, can I, can I, like, <laughs> say, hey, I know Colin Sherwin card? I think that could work, yes. That might get yeah. you executed. I don't know. Lopez, what do you got? All right, so uh, I, I'm going to be watching Australian Open big men's final Sunday morning. So it's probably a good thing we're not going to the USDA Center on Sunday morning because I'm going to actually watch the men's final live. Novak Djokovic against one of the new gens. What time is this? Five four a.m. Three thirty in the morning Eastern. That's yeah, right. that's that's, that's right. not. I don't think that's the morning. That's still the night. I'm jealous of Murph. All those years he was on the West Coast, he could watch the final at midnight, right, Murph? You could used used to watch those at midnight. I'd say for anyone who's never lived on the West Coast, you'll never understand this, but every sporting event is better on the West Coast. Every this I day. agree with. I because I have been in the Pacific Time Zone. And it's fan and it is fantastic. NFL football at 10 a.m. on a Sunday is just a oh gift God. from the gods. And like the London game started like six in the morning, which I know it's early, but it's still fun. Uh, sometimes it's a little cumbersome when like the the night game start at four. 
But you get used to that. You're off at you're off work soon after that anyway, and then everything's over by ten, you know. Or if you got the like you said, you got the you got the Australian Open on, you can <sighs> probably watch, you know, like the first couple of sets early on. I mean, but again, I will I will hey I will maintain there is no better coast not just because I live there and it's still my home and whatever, but there's no better coast <laughs> sports than the West Coast. It's by far better than the East Coast. Not even close. If you're a, yeah, if, you came back, and yet you came back. Yeah. If you're a sports reporter, it's the best. Like, it, just fun. be in LA. I mean, that's that's all you got to do. You got major airports all over the place. Everything happens early. You can you can get a reasonable amount of sleep. It's fantastic. So, well, yeah, uh, that'll be fun. But uh, I also will I will do have UCF stuff to do. I will be filling in for Scott Adams on Saturday, calling the UCF SMU women's basketball game. All right. Audio broadcast on UCF Knights TV, on Twitch. Get that. Of course, the game will also be televised in the American Digital Network. Just just mute them, our good friends, with all respect. <laughs> mute them. Listen to my broadcast. I uh, appreciate You're going to be there, right, Jeff? PA? You know yes, I will be there for PA on uh, on Saturday. Jeremy's so we'll both be, be in the house. Jeremy. Jeremy Brenner will be there. Yep. So we got that game covered. And so we'll be there while Murph's in Tampa hanging out at the Yingling uh, Arena there. And then I will be hosting the UCF softball opening day dinner that night. At uh, right there at DoubleTree, right next to the uh, right on camp, next to the campus, that will be going on tonight. Looking for that, boys. We one week from right now, as we record, I would be on my way for the UCF softball complex season opener, UCF Indiana, six o'clock, baby. Softball's here, Merv. Softball, baseball. Softball season, beats huh? out baseball once again, doesn't it? Huh? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very favorite. There you go. I usually do one week ahead, so. We'll have a softball. We'll preview the softball season our next uh, next week. We may have a special. We may not. We'll see. I know we're going to have baseball stuff specials coming up. Murph, we've made it. We're almost there. Uh, you've been clamoring since October. Uh, baseball, the spring is here. It's I can't wait. God, February <laughs> is a big month, not just for college baseball, but camps open in Arizona and Florida. It brings a tear to my eye. I'm sure. And, by the way, for you football fans, I've heard from some sources in the conference we might get the conference schedule between now and the next week or two. Okay. The, huh? Yeah. All right. What happened? That's, conference that's, schedule, baby. Could be this week. Could be next week. There could be close, and that'll give us an idea what the conference schedule look like, and you can start planning ahead for football as well. We can. We can. So let's say it comes out in this next week. So we'll spend a good chunk of next week's show deciding what what games are wins and what games are losses, you know, six months before we play a single down. What are you talking about, Merv? There's no such thing as a loss on that schedule right now. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. Oh, boy. Here we go. All right. Let's get uh, out of here. It's going to be more about your trips, Murf, and where you're going to be in, no, in October, November. I'm interested in it. But. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, uh, they're probably, they probably have to go to East Carolina, uh, which is always the hardest one. Uh, I might have to drive again. We'll see. That's going to be tough. But a good place to be, nonetheless. Actually, a really fun and place to be. You're back to USF, Murph, so you have to make that drive to Tampa next year again. That's okay. Again, driving to Tampa is fine. It's quick. I've driven to Tampa, like, literally dozens of times. <laughs> I've only driven to Greenville once, and it was kind of harrowing. So, <laughs> I did not. Wow. Maybe that should be a part of the football season is the Trips with Murph Diaries or something. Can we put that on the site, Jeff? Like, <laughs> Just have Murph track Murph uh, as travels. Adventure. <laughs> we gotta we gotta find a good way to brand that before we can actually go about it. But I think we'll we'll, throw, we'll kick around some ideas. We'll kick around some ideas. Don't say kick around. You know it's offensive, Jeff. I, 
<laughs> what a way to end the show. Oh, God. All right. I'm sorry, Murph. Um, anyway, on that note, <laughs> let's uh, let's go ahead and get on out of here. Um, Brian and Eric, thank you once again. Make sure you follow us at uh, UCF underscore Bannerhead on Twitter. Spokes underscore Murphy on Twitter. Uh, Eric Lopez Elo. Jeff underscore Sharon. Also, don't forget to follow uh, all of our other staff members. Jeremy Brenner, uh, Luke Saris. Uh, Derek Warden, as always, uh, with his, uh, he's got the basketball gallery up, which is great. Uh, Anthony Linehan, um, and, uh, and everyone here at Black and Gold Panorette. We've got to try and get the latest up for you on all UCF sports. I'm really proud of that, so uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, for all of us here at Black and Gold Banneret, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Enjoy the weekend.